Welcome to Moment of Truth with Amy Chen Mills. That's me, where we offer clear thinking on confusing topics during challenging times. A lot of the time at the show, we take on the troubling fascism rising in the United States, white supremacy, racism, colonialism, homophobia, and transphobia, attacks on women and girls across the country, along with the climate and extinction crises, and, well, it's a lot. So every fourth show or so, Moment of Truth is dedicated to what I am going to call Deeper Waters. Deeper waters for me means focusing on our resilience, our inner wisdom, and the deeper thought patterns and cultural or capitalist or patriarchal programming at the root of the existential problems we face today. Deeper waters is our spiritual connection, I believe, to one another and to earth. And today we have the most excellent speaker to talk about all of this. Her name is Sherry Mitchell, and she, I believe, is on with us on Clean Feed. Are you there, Sherry? I am. Can you hear me? Yes. And I'm going to just introduce you for a moment. Um, Sherry Mitchell, Wana Hamu Kwaset. Is that correct, the way I'm pronouncing that? It's very close. Okay. <laughs> Do you want to pronounce it? I think it'd be nice to hear. Wana Hamu Kwaset is an indigenous attorney, activist, and author from the Penobscot Nation, which is in Maine and Canada, in the waters of the Penobscot River. She is an alumna of the American Indian Ambassador Program and the Udall Native American Congressional Internship Program. Sherry is the author of Sacred Instructions, Indigenous Wisdom for Living Spirit-Based Change, and a contributor to 11 anthologies, including All We Can Save, Truth, Courage, and Solutions for the Climate Crisis, it's a book that I actually have, and Resetting Our Future, Empowering Climate Action in the United States. Sherry is is executive director of the Land Peace Foundation and an educational organization dedicated to the preservation of the indigenous way of life. She serves as a trustee for the American Indian Institute, an indigenous advisory council member for Nia Tiro's Indigenous Land Guardianship Program, and a board member for the Post Carbon Institute. Wow, that's a lot. And Sherry is the recipient of several human rights and humanitarian awards, and her portrait is featured in the esteemed Americans Who Tell the Truth portrait series. Sherry is the convener of the global healing ceremony, Healing the Wounds of Turtle Island, a gathering that has brought together more than 50,000 people from six continents to focus on healing our relationships with one another and the natural world. Welcome, Sherry. How are you? Thank you so much for having me, Amy. I'm well. How are you? You know, I was going to start with that, (laughs) thinking that you could help all of us a little bit right Mm -hmm. now um, with what's happening in Israel and Gaza. And I'm bringing this up because I've been reading your book. You should see it. It's got, you know, like... Um, all of these tabs that I, you know, it's probably like 50 tabs on all these pages where I've underlined and highlighted. And um, my husband is actually from Israel. Um, He has probably 50 or 60 family members there that are immediate family members to him. Um, And so when the attacks happened initially, there was shock and, 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 and outrage. And now there's also these attacks on Gaza and there's so much happening on social media. There's so much happening that's so painful to watch, to see in Gaza uh, and uh, and was in Israel as well. And there's a lot of there's a lot of um, 
dialogue on social media that is in a lot of outrage. And I understand about outrage at this time, right? Like it's hard not to be outraged when people you love are hurt or killed or but the I thought of this this phrase deeper waters because I was reading your book and there was a part about the divine feminine that really struck me. And I was wondering if you could talk about because I thought to myself that's what we're missing. Like we're missing that so much and it really touched me what you wrote about the divine feminine and I'm wondering if you could talk about what the divine feminine is for you and I know you talk about it in indigenous cultures. Um and and then we can talk about maybe what do we need to do about it. Mm. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's uh, um, there's so much right now that's um, pulling on our hearts. Yeah. And so, as you know, in the book, I talk about women being the water bearers of the universe, and that. When we become mothers, uh, we cultivate life in that space right below our heart. And so we're these keepers of divine wisdom and heart-based knowledge. And um, I think that the, the challenge for us at this time is remaining connected to our hearts mm. in a world that feels like it's blowing our hearts apart every day. Yeah. And I think the role that we're being called for right now, we just had our annual matriarchs gathering here and we had more than a hundred women that come from across the country to be with us. And we talked about how do we honor the role of women, the life uh, span of a woman and all of the various ways that the sacred feminine comes to bear upon our families, our communities, our societies, um, how that intuitive knowing that's carried in the feminine aspect of all beings. Yeah, I was going to say, it's of how not they just identify. women. Yeah, and, right. and there may be different identifications that carry a lot of feminine energy as right. well. Yeah. Yeah, that the role of of that life-giving energy, because when we think about the divine feminine, it's not a gender identification. It's really an energetic imprint. And that, that, that energy um, of that divine feminine uh, really is about nurturing, cultivating, protecting, breathing into life and it's about creation, whether we give birth to a living child or to something else. And so when we think about what has been created, what has been birthed into this world through our collective imagination, taking responsibility for what we have created is very, very painful. And I think that um, we need to really learn how to grieve the old narratives that we have been living under. We have to be willing to let go of the stories that we have identified ourselves with so strongly because we have adopted these identities that are based in old stories that are not evolved in the ways that our consciousness needs to evolve in this moment. Um, and so 
when I'm thinking about that sacred mother energy, what I'm channeling into my body um, is an intuitive knowing that goes beyond the confines of the mind of the current society. Something that sees beyond the limitations of our fear-based way of being in relationship with one another and is connected to that thread of life that gives us the opportunity to continue to exist into the future. Uh, when we can tap into that wisdom that has spanned time and um, been connected to our existence since we were first seated here on this planet and actually is reaching through us to the future, then we're in alignment with what we need wisdom-wise in order to be able to survive the challenges of our time. Um, I was listening uh, prior to the program beginning to the program that was on before yours. Yeah. Um, and they spoke of my dearly beloved brother, um, Bio Akamalafi. Mm. Um, and I was messaging with Bio this morning about how um, we have a, another dear friend of ours who is in Australia and they just voted not to recognize the Aboriginal people in Australia in their constitution. I saw that. Um, and I was um, messaging that, you know, there are so many things that are distressing during this time. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that, that we talked about, but, um, you know, have to develop further in our thinking is the fact that you know, there's this huge cloud of dust that is present right now in this moment of deep-seated upheaval. It's not just a cloud of dust in one region. It's this large cloud of dust that is um, circumventing the planet right now. And it's distorting all of our vision. Uh, but in that cloud of dust, there are patterns that exist, um, you know, and one of the things that um, Bio talked about was, um, you know, trying to find our way through this weathering grief that we're experiencing in the midst of this distorting cloud. Um, and one of the things that we have to remember is that underneath the distortion, there are worlds that exist and there are worlds that are being born and there are worlds that are being imagined into being. And how do we become intent on seeking those worlds beyond the distortion of what has been and beyond the, the deep pain of what we have created within the illusion of our separation and in the distortions that um, have prevented us from seeing one another with humane eyes. And so, you know, here we are in this moment of suffering deep in the birth canal, unable to see, feeling immensely squeezed by this pressure and not knowing what's on the other side um, of this and forgetting oftentimes that we have the power to be able to imagine that next thing into being. Yeah. And so even though it's a very painful time, 
and we're weathering these storms together collectively. Um, we also have the capacity to collectively be birthing a new way of being into life. Yeah. Yeah, I'm talking to Sherry Mitchell, if you've just joined us, uh, who is the author of Sacred Instructions and has written a lot on climate change and indigenous wisdom for indigenous people and I think for, for other people as well. Um, and one of the things I wanted to ask you about this divine feminine, I'm just going to read this passage from your book because it really struck me. Um, this is from Sacred Instructions, page 122. Unfortunately, the voice of the women in its purest form has been missing from the public dialogue for too long. As a result, life has gone into disarray. The subjugation and oppression of the divine feminine is directly connected to every threat to life that we face today. And as I'm looking at this war, I was thinking about, well, what, because the feminine energy is an inward energy, you know, as you write about in your book, and it's a reflective energy, it's a going within and what's the right thing to do here. And it can involve grieving when something's happening, when there's so much masculine energy. And I, I know you don't think that, I mean, there's toxic masculine energy, unhealthy energy, but you also talk about what healthy masculinity is in indigenous cultures. Like it feels like to just be so feminine is to be a bit passive. You know what I'm saying? Like, is how can we be activists? How can we, and yet I also see in the grief that I'm feeling for the situation um, in Israel right now, and we also have the war in Ukraine, we have so much happening, we have Sud Sudanese famine, you know, uh, climate related, and just so much that what does it mean to be in feminine energy? Like grief is what occurs to me, um, like allowing for grief, whereas a lot of times the masculine is let's not go there, you know, let's just fight and you know we need to get revenge we need to get get out there right <laughs> and mm -hmm. so i don't mean to laugh but I, I have this little habit um so what do you think i mean i know you've talked about creating new worlds but at this time what does it mean to resist i guess from feminine energy or would you even consider resistance well, I think um, there are there are many things that I think. <laughs> yes, I know. That's why we have you on. It's it's wonderful. Um, yeah, I um, you know I think what's really necessary for this moment in time is balance mm. and recognizing that there are um, so many ways that we restrict ourselves into binary thinking, and one of those ways is by not contemplating deeply the fact that we have so much more than just masculine and feminine within us. Um, and in this moment, you know, when you're talking, I'm, my family is um, Bear Clan from the Penobscot Nation and Crow Clan from the Passamaquoddy tribe at Zibike. And when I think about, you know, passivity related to the feminine, I think about a mother bear and I think about um, any mother fiercely protecting their child. There is nothing passive about it. Mm. Uh, there is nothing passive about peace. Mm. You know, there's all of these ideas that we have that are locked into limitation 
that prevent us from thinking about the full spectrum of possibility that exists within um, these spheres of influence that we have. So the, the answer, I think, for this time is not strictly to think about feminine energy. We can think about mothering and othering um, in relation to protection of life. We can think about it in relation to connection to our fullest emotion. Um, we can think about the aspects of that wisdom being made manifest through the partnership with that masculine external energy. But there's also something else. There's also this space in between. Our medicine societies are called Medewalin. And um, those medicine societies, the word for Medewalin is actually based on a word within our language that refers to the space between the skin and the wood on a drum. Hmm. In recognition that it is in the space in between where life really develops, where the magic really happens. Um, we have this, this space in between um, right now, between this masculine and feminine, where there is a possibility for us in this moment that has largely gone unimagined. Uh, and we don't know how to behave in the face of such immense pain and suffering. Uh, and we, we don't have time to catch our breath because we're living in a society that is a survival society. Mm. It's a survival culture, um, you know, where there's so much grief that there's no time for us to adequately mourn. Um, there's no time for us to be able to take a deep breath in order to allow the sobs within us to emerge because there's one thing after another, after another, after another that prevents us from being able to breathe through our grief. And so how do we adequately show up for this moment if there's no space for us to breathe between moments of grieving? And that's where we have to enter into community that's where we have to allow ourselves to be surrounded by those who have the ability to be able to hold space for us to be able to take a deep breath. And then we can in turn hold space for them to take that deep breath because being able to um, feel the fullness of this moment is essential for our survival into the future. If we don't feel the fullness of the pain of this time, then we will be too disconnected from the things that have to be done in order for us to survive. And so how do we hold one another in this time in order for us to be able to sink into the fullness of that grief, I think is the challenge before us, not just, you know, is it a mother that leads us into our connection to emotion or, you know, is it a father who says, now, 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 that's enough of that, let's move on. Um, how do we hold the mothers and the fathers who are mm -hmm. grieving the loss of their children? How do we hold those children who are grieving the losses of their mothers and fathers? 
Um, how do we how do we grieve for generations who are losing all of their elders, the wisdom of those elders? Uh, you know, there's so much there that we have to come forward for. Um, you know, we have to be able to hold one another in the midst of pain. And so in the book, there's a chapter on grief, trauma, and intimacy. And this moment calls for us to be present with the full measure of our pain just for a moment without having to try to solve it hmm. or resolve it. Yeah. To just be present with it so that we can fully understand it so that we can let that grief within us know that there's a safe place to exist in the presence of that grief. Hmm. And this is what we have not allowed ourselves the space for. We have not allowed ourselves to be fully present with our grief. And so until we're able to do that collectively as a group, I don't know how we move through the deep wounding of this time. Because as you said, um, there's so much going on right now that appears to be a shift um, away from life. It appears to be a shift toward greater violence. It appears to be a shift toward greater destruction. It appears to be um, moving us away from the life that we most want. However, is there something in there that's helping us come closer to who and what we most want to be? You know, I think that I was, I don't know, 18 or 19 years old and I thought I was really clever. Um, and, you know, realize that I, you know, we often don't figure things out until we realize that it's not what we thought it was going to be. And that realization of um, what we don't want, what we cannot allow, becomes fundamental to the development of becoming who and what we want most to be, mm. um, who and what we are being called to be. And I think that that's critical during this time. Um, yeah, I have. I had a conversation with my partner the other night about, um, you know, who are we in truth? Are we the person in this moment who is most flawed, or are we the aspirational version of ourselves that we most want to be? Um, what I said to him in that conversation was, I believe that it is our truest selves who calls us forth in the aspirations that arise from within us. And so is it the truest self of our species that is calling us forward during this time, causing us to experience the deepest pain of this moment so that we can rise out of it more closely aligned with our own fundamental truth? Yeah. I hope that that's true. Yeah. I keep thinking, uh, you know, what keeps occurring to me is cease fire, cease fire, mm -hmm. you know, give us time to 
grieve and sort things out and what's happening. It's just all happening so quickly. Of course, I don't have the power to call a ceasefire. Uh, I did call my representative. (laughs) But... um, Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, you're talking about, you know, what our aspirations are. And in your book, you talk a lot about connection to creator. And I, I want to get into that because I feel like that's something that we can immediately all have access to and, and super important. We're going to go to a quick break and then we will come right back with Sherry Mitchell, author of Sacred Instructions of the Penobscot Nation. sometimes happens with mothers, we don't develop the relationship we should have with them. Sometimes it's mothers don't know how to mother, sometimes kids don't know how to be kids. And that's where we're at now. The kids are running wild. It's like the Lord of Flies. And we have to remember who we are. That was Greg Castro, co-founder and advisor to the California Indian History Curriculum Coalition at CSU Sacramento, promoting accurate school curriculum. He is now culture director of the Association of Areme Tush Alone, advising within their San Francisco Peninsula homelands. This was recorded at the Contemporary Indigenous Voices discussion on August 19th, 2023, at the Museum of Art History here in Santa Cruz. Uh, the Indigenous Voices photo exhibit is currently at the De Young Museum in San Francisco until January 7th of 2024. Um, we have a very special Indigenous guest with us today, Sherry Mitchell, who's on the line, I believe, from Maine. Are you based in, are you Are you on the island in the river? Is that where you are? That's not where I am right now, but that's where I grew up. I'm probably 35 miles south of there now on a large farm um, where we have our land-based campus for Wajukum Doltina, mm. kinship community. Uh, Wajukum Doltina means let's help one another. Mm. And so we have a learning community here um, on this farm, uh, about 35 miles south of my reservation. You know, and one of the things that I think you do at that community, and that is something that we could all should be thinking about, and I feel it, that this this turn, it's not everywhere, it's certainly still probably in the minority, but a turning to indigenous wisdom. And just to give folks sort of an overview of the book, Sacred Instructions, Sherry talks a lot about indigenous wisdom and indigenous culture, the balance of masculine and feminine, and also some of the prophecies from indigenous cultures that some of you have heard. You know, I've heard some of these, too, that we are in this moment of precipice where we can either fulfill prophecies of uh, healing and resolution and harmony on Earth, or we can go sort of the wrong direction. And I wanted to come back to this idea that you talk about in the book, because it's a little bit paradoxical where you talk about we can bypass colonization as indigenous people by understanding that there is no separation between us and creator. And I understand Mm -hmm. that to also mean our inner wisdom, our intuition, our own truth. Um, 
And so that's really hopeful to me, you know, and you talk also about like changing our, our thinking, our thought patterns. Uh, I'm not sure if you word it quite that way, but it's something that's in my background quite a bit is looking at thought, looking at our innate wisdom. And that strikes me as something that can be immediate for people. Like the idea to like, rather than go straight into revenge or anger to go into grief, to allow those feelings could happen for anybody, right? right. So you talk about this very immediate, like, things could change quickly if our paradigm shifted and we all turn toward indigenous cultures or, you know, whether that's your indigenous culture or our own indigenous cultures. Um, and, and then you also talk about, I don't know how you want to, you know, share this out to the world and it might be difficult, but it, there's a paradox there. Cause you also talk about knowing that we are connected to all of life, that mm-hmm. it's kind of eternal life in all things we also have patience. And I feel like somehow those two things relate, or I, I don't know if you have any thoughts about these things that I read in your book, but they were inspiring to me. Well, I'm happy to know that, that the book is inspiring. I, you know, I, I should have I should have read it again before we talked. It's been, <laughs> it came out in 2018 and was written, yeah. written about a year prior to that. So it's been a while since I've, I've read through it. And, um, you know, I, I never remember exactly what I say when I speak. So, yeah. um, but thinking about, um, the paradox of time and immediacy yeah, in what we're dealing with right now, one of the stories that we have within our tradition, um, tells us that this is the fourth time that we have been here, that we have been seated here on this planet three other times, and we've failed to find our way and have had to exit the planet as a species. Uh, when we think about the possibility of that being true, there's a long game in there that starts to appear. And um, I've thought a lot about this because we've, people oftentimes will ask me, how do you remain hopeful in a world such as this? And, um, you know, when the possibility of us having to exit the planet uh, is mounting as a result of our own behavior and our unwillingness to look at things like climate change and the dramatic impacts of um, ongoing, never-ending extraction and overconsumption, and um, we're like children who don't realize that there's a possible um, consequence for having too much. Mm. And so, um, you know, we we have to be able to find within that potential reality that we're going to be exiting the planet, some type of solace. And for me, that comes through our stories. Uh, There is a research that was recently done that said that indigenous and Aboriginal stories may be the most accurate human historical record um, available to us uh, at this time. And Interestingly, they talk about um, the Aboriginal stories from Australia that are proving out through the geological record as it unfolds about 
um, you know, 65,000 years of accurate ecological data. Um, so when I think about the long history of our storytelling, when I think about the possibility of this being our fourth time here, that provides patience uh, it also provides a sense of acceptance that if we if we don't make it through this time, um, then you know what do I do with this one life that I have that I'm living within this body? Uh, do I give up? Do I um, surrender myself to that grief, to that despair, or do I work very very hard in this moment? to try to get us further along than we've ever been. And I feel like having the, the long history of connectivity to this place um, uh, for my ancestral line, um, having this long history of um, awareness connected to the potentiality that we have as a species uh, for beautiful and wonderful things and horrible things that there has to be, there has to be more to the story than what we're seeing in this moment. Um, but that doesn't prevent us or prohibit us or relieve us from having to deal with what's in front of us right now. Mm. And so, um, you know, I think we, we get challenged by short-sightedness um, and then we get daunted by long vision and somewhere in between there is the space for us to um, be present in the moment that we're in uh, which is what all of the great spiritual teachers of, of the world have told us that we have to do uh, so you know, we are people of an oral tradition and that oral tradition carries stories forward generation by generation by generation by enlivening the story within the generation that is present in the moment. And so if I'm thinking about the history of that story going back all the way back, you know, through my ancestral line and the continuation of that story going forward through my grandchildren and hopefully one day great-grandchildren, um, there's a point in time where I am present in the moment with the enlivening of that story. Uh, and I hold responsibility in that moment of enlivening for being the storyteller and so who are we gonna choose to be in this moment of storytelling? What is our role gonna be in enlivening the story of this moment hmm. while remaining connected to the thread of story that goes back to the beginning of our existence as peoples and carrying that forward to those who will tell those stories in the future? Um, you know, we hold a great responsibility for the narratives that we are enlivening in this moment um, because they frame the future reality that we're going to be forced to live within. 
Yeah, you talk about that in the book. I'm just going to remind you <laughs> of like, you know, bringing, you know, thinking ourselves about the seventh generation. What kind of future do we envision for them, at least contextually, for them to live in? How do we right. contribute to that? And um, I have this really important question. I just have to remind everyone that you're listening to KSQD, K-Squid, uh, on the California Central Coast at 90.789. No, 90.7 FM, 89.7 FM, and 89.5 FM. Now that we have all these new towers, it's it's getting confusing to read out the, the uh, call numbers. Um and we're talking with Sherry Mitchell, who is the author of Sacred Instructions and brings indigenous wisdom forward at this time. She is the executive director of the Land Peace Foundation. Is that, did I say that right? Yes. Okay. And um, she's an indigenous person with the Penobscot Nation. Um, and she, I just have found her book really inspiring, Sacred Instructions. Here's a question that I have. Okay, so okay. a lot of us folks, I am half Asian, I'm half Chinese, I'm half Anglo, half white, and I, my mother was an immigrant. My, I don't know what my father's lineage was, his roots. I have an indig indigenous Athabascan friend in in Alaska who always tells me, well, we were all indigenous at some point. You know, I'm like, okay, I'm trying to feel it, you know, but... <laughs> We yeah. A lot of us don't have the same connection to the land that an indigenous culture around us would help to facilitate. A lot of us feel a little bit shy about trying to appropriate anything. I mean, we, we shouldn't from indigenous cultures to, to have more connection to the land. But you see this nation on Turtle Island is composed of so many different kinds of people. And how do we as non-indigenous people um, how do we participate with this vision, which I think is so important, that indigenous people are offering to, I mean, actually here in, in our community, we have the Amamutsun tribal band that has volunteer opportunities to help them restore like the, the grasslands here and so forth. So a lot of us participate with them and volunteer, but that's not every day, you know, it's once a month or whatever, you know, like, so what what would you advise like a white person to do, you know, a, a, a descendant of colonizers to do at this time mm -hmm. to get, because you talk a lot about connecting to earth. Yeah. And are we, are we excluded from this? You know, um, are we included and what is the appropriate manifestation of that inclusion? Mm. I, I want to share with you, first of all, the, my new favorite word, um, which is exdigenous. <laughs> Uh, so there are indigenous people and then there are ex-digenous people. Um, and the ex-digenous people have lost that thread of connection with Nigwaskiktimik, Mother Earth. And so when we think about how do we renew our connection with the earth, if we're not indigenous, we just forget that um, we're not indigenous and we start thinking about ourselves as exdigenous. And we re remember that every single human being alive on the planet started out from a cultural tradition that was deeply connected to the entire living world and that this forgetting that has happened across generations um, is an illusion that we can wake up from in a moment 
One of the things that um, happened for me, for my benefit, is I um, got a parasite when I was working with some of the Maya in Guatemala and uh, became very sick for about 18 months and then um, have suffered with some pretty severe digestive issues ever since then. And one of the things that I learned during that time was that if I laid on the ground, if I physically put my body on the earth, I would feel better. And so I, at one point in time, you know, I had been an environmental activist out in the world, fighting the powers that were harming Mother Earth um, for a long time. Um, and I remember one time in this process of being very sick, where I had laid this thin orange blanket, because uh, orange was supposed to be the color of vibrancy in life, um, on the ground. And I laid down and I was really trying to connect with the earth. And I was laying on my back and I, I rolled onto my stomach and I just really concentrated on reaching my heart energy out to the heart of Mother Earth. Um, and for the first time in my life, someone who was raised to understand my deep connectivity to the natural world, who grew up in a culture that was deeply aligned with that way of knowing, um, for the first time in my life, I had this profound experience of feeling the Earth Mother reach back. And it was because I had opened myself to the possibility of sending my love out that I had allowed myself to feel the love of the earth coming back toward me. And there are countless people that I know, both indigenous and exdigenous, who have had moments where they extended a hand of love to the earth and had felt that reach back. Hmm. Um, and I think that it really is a matter of getting out of our own way, uh, that we have that experience. We're talking with Sherry Mitchell. Her book is called Sacred Instructions, and the subtitle is Indigenous Wisdom for Living Spirit-Based Change. And what I loved about this book was that it was so resonant with my own understanding, my own spiritual understanding of life. I'm going to read this quote from your book um, because it talks about everyone, indigenous, exdigenous, and it does seem to me like we all need to get in touch with our love of earth. You know, I hug trees sometimes, and I'm seeing on social media like these interesting videos of animals showing up, and we're animals too, but the, like you say, four-leggeds and the one fish in the sea and so forth, whales behaving in these very interesting, like hyper-intelligent ways where they seem to be like expressing messages, you know, and, and communicating in a deeper way than I've ever ex seen um, animals behave um, or think or do. And let me read this. Um, Everyone possesses the same ability to shed their illusion and see the world as a unified whole simply by expanding their awareness and shifting their vibration. 
Mm -hmm. Once we have mastered these vibrational shifts, we can begin to shift the reality that we live in to one that is more harmonious and balanced with our divine source. In other places in the book, you talk about just the conditioning of colonialism and capitalism and how and patriarchy. We only have about a minute left on, in the show. I'm wondering if there's anything you, Sherry, I'm sorry, we don't have more time. I'd love to get you back on sometime. But um, yeah, if you have anything you'd like to add to that. You know, I, I think that we're we're living in a time where the natural world is really communicating with us. And so we have people across the world who are experiencing emotions that they can't explain. Hmm. Deep grief, incredible loneliness during times where they had normally felt connected, um, waking up in the night with panic attacks. Hmm. And what I have suggested to people is that this is not something that is wrong with us, but something that is being righted within us with the guidance and assistance of the natural world. So the thought I'd like to leave people with is the possibility that when we're waking up with deep grief um, or experiencing it while driving down the road, that maybe it's not our grief that we're feeling, but the grief of the mother whale who carried her baby around for 17 days, trying to show us what we are doing to their ecosystem. Mm. Maybe the loneliness that we're feeling is the loneliness of the last white rhino on the planet who has nobody left in their species to communicate and connect with. Um, maybe all of the things that we're feeling within our body right now are emotions that are intended to guide us back into right relationship with life. And what if rather than looking at those things as something being wrong within us, we started looking at those things as guideposts on a map that were leading us back to the very thing that was most right about who we are. Oh, thank you so much, Sherry Mitchell, author of Sacred Instructions, Indigenous Wisdom for Living Spirit-Based Change, also the executive director of the Land Peace Foundation. Please go to the Land Peace Foundation website at landpeacefoundation.org. That's all one word. You can also find Sherry, uh, and you can type in Sacred Instructions on Instagram and Facebook and find Sherry as well. Thank you so much, Sherry, for joining us. It was an honor to have you. Thank you, Amy. It's a pleasure to be with you. And, um, oh, feels like we need a little moment of silence after all of that. The sense of just stopping and feeling is with me. Um, and I do need to talk about our next show, which is Gen Z in the labor movement with our own Santa Cruz-based Joe Thompson, organizer of the first Starbucks union in California, a Santa Cruz City Council candidate and union activists and attorneys from organizing efforts across the nation. Moment of Truth gives many, many thanks to our team, Nyanko Nyasu, sound and tech engineer, and our research and production team, Nyanko, Mayling Obinada, Todd Zimmerman, and Vara Ramakrishnan. Todd Zimmerman of Native Verse Studios created the theme song. Kathy Krizik created our logo. Thanks to our KSQD program manager, Howard Feldstein, and the entire KSQD team on the California Central Coast, where the show originates. Thank you for tuning in to Moment of Truth. Please contact us at amy, A-M-I, at ksqd.org with questions or comments or show ideas. And remember, if we don't use our democracy, we lose our democracy. 